0: You may have met a few people who like doing this sort of thing. They're a nuisance, I agree, but pretty harmless. In this advertisement from 1945, you see a series of practical jokes. Books falling on a man's head as he opens a door, a stool kicked out of place just as someone's about to sit down. Someone shoved into a lake. You have certainly seen problems like this. They're not a nuisance, they're a real danger. This ad called Coughs and Sneezes was a public health campaign produced by the UK government. In it, a clueless man sneezes loudly and forcefully in a crowded theatre, in a packed elevator, and waiting in line, without covering his mouth. Hi! stop it, you. Stop it, stop it. Come here, what do you think you're up to? You've probably infected thousands of people already. A hand then comes into frame and pulls a handkerchief out of the clueless man's pocket, and holds it up to him. What do you think this is for? That's the idea. Fine. Now you can carry on. The Central Office of Information was founded in 1946. The reasoning, according to Prime Minister Clement Attlee, was that the public should be adequately informed about the many matters in which government action directly impinges on their daily lives. Sure, there were films about taxes, but the agency also produced ads about public health, using the crosswalk, littering, and later AIDS. If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. So don't die of ignorance. With stakes that high, good advertising was urgent and imperative. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising. The good, the bad and the ugly. Today, we're going to be talking about ads that serve the public good. To do it, we'll be talking to Gail Galley. Gail is the co-founder and creative leader of Project Everyone, a nonprofit that helps spread awareness for the sustainable development goals, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Before that, she was the CEO of the agency Fallon and before that, the head of marketing for BBC Radio 1. Gail, thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: You are welcome. Nice to be here.
0: And very nice to have you here. Hi. You gave this presentation during your time at Fallon, a presentation where you said on stage that at advertising's heart, it makes people think and behave differently. We've talked in other episodes about how that's worked for brands, how ads have convinced people to buy boxer shorts, chocolate, or pestered people until they purchase running shoes. But what has advertising been able to do when it's deployed for public service? Can you think of any ads that were particularly successful? You don't have to have worked on them, but ads that you've felt driven to do something or think differently by.
1: God, yeah. I mean, I I think, I can't remember when the genre started. I guess it's always been around. But the ones I remember as being super defining. Do you remember the smoking advert called The Natural Born Smoker? No. You don't? No. oh my gosh you have to look it up so it was one of those really scary sort of um vincent price kind of overtone voiceovers it was shot from behind like an office swivel chair from behind so you couldn't see he was in the chair you just saw smoke rising and the scary voice goes like the natural born
0: smoker the first natural born smoker will have a larger nose to filter out impurities <sighs> We'll have a long index finger for tapping
1: and then you see this like really quite alarming long finger tapping the ash
0: smaller ears because they don't listen
1: and then it closes up in this like hideous face and then it it gradually right the chair swings round, and there's this really horrific looking like acid bath alien human really enjoying a fag and i just remember seeing that i was only i mean i was so young so hold your insults but i just remember was feeling really sick and doing the desired reaction, I think, which is, I am never going to smoke. Because it was terrifying. I mean, obviously it didn't it work. It did not work. Did no. It? <laughs> and people carried on smoking. But it was a really brilliant, uh, pure piece of advertising, I'd say in the best mode, you know, like really single minded proper drama and suspense, beautifully made. I mean, like the budget must have been proper. And then it just like left you hanging with this horrific image. That and, and, I mean, a bit like the... Um, Cigarette
0: it, packets you see today.
1: Yeah, yeah. It had the same effect, I guess. But at the time, you know, there were fewer adverts, there was fewer channels. So you, you would you'd like hide behind the sofa when it came on because it was so scary. And <laughs> I, th- I think it was the same time as the other ad I remember being kind of formed by in this genre which was the AIDS ad The Tombstones you must remember of that course. one
2: yeah, yeah yeah
0: there is now a danger that has become a threat to us all it is a deadly disease and there is no known cure the virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person so protect yourself if you ignore AIDS it could be the death of you so don't die of ignorance
1: and it had that same kind of look and vibe and like terrifying, absolute kind of death overtones. I mean, that was obviously a terrible ad and, and lo- misleading in lots of ways because it it didn't really give the facts about uh, AIDS at all. Whereas I think the smoking one was pretty on the money.
0: Were they effective? I mean, do you think they actually did anything other than just shock people and maybe drive them even from turning the television off?
1: Well, that's really interesting. I mean, not just anecdotally, but the smoking one clearly categorically didn't work. You know, people didn't stop smoking. Whereas I think the AIDS one, it certainly did a job, right? Nobody really had heard of that disease. So I think it definitely woke people up to a new crisis, whether it was accurate or not, I don't know, but it definitely woke people up to a new crisis
0: and using all the best tricks of advertising, you know. Tom Hanks and Philadelphia.
1: Oh, yes. I think it was a little earlier than that. That was a much more nuanced public service two hours, 20 announcement. That's one of my favourite films, weirdly. So sad. Oh, so sad. So good. So
0: you've always been, I mean, at least as long as I've known you, I feel like you've always been interested in and involved around politics and, and some degree public service, right? Whether that's doing the public service or being involved in public communications. What are you doing now within Project Everyone?
1: So the topic I only work on now are the UN's Sustainable Development Goals uh, or the Global Goals. And I say the only topic, but they are every topic, right? So they're are, there are a plan of 17 goals agreed by every member state at the UN to sort out every problem. So in that sense, yes, they're really public service <laughs> but I'm at the most macro level, right? They're, they're trying to sort out the planet. They're trying to sort out the people. And they're trying to give some degree of prosperity to everyone. So, yes, in essence, it's a big old public service remit. Project Everyone was founded as a collaboration between a good friend of mine, Kate Garvey, who came from a PR and politics background, and Richard Curtis, who obviously is much more well-known, and he comes from a filmmaking and creative storytelling background. So between us, we sort of had all the disciplines covered off. And we, the first thing we did was take a policy document, which no one would have read, and turn it into a brand. So I'm not sure it was... advertising as much as it was uh, marketing. And then we tried to break up this chunky 17-point plan into all the marketing tricks, you know, what was it trying to say, who to, to what end, and what do you want people to do about it? And I think all of my career, I have, I suppose, looking back on it, been happier, certainly doing public service, but very much at the intersection of public service and fun. So I, I love you know, the moment when an idea forms and you go, oh, I could do that. Um, and that happens daily with the goals and project everyone, because there's, there's just so much to go at. Right. You've got the whole world, every problem, every media. So, it's, yeah, it's a really lovely combination of everything I, I've done, but also everything I have fun doing.
0: And is there stuff that you've done during your time at Fallon, for example, so working within an agency that you definitely don't do now in Project Everyone or vice versa?
1: Yeah, I don't analyze research into depressed middle-aged housewives and work out how if we added salt to that chocolate, it would make them marginally, briefly less depressed. I mean, just the pointlessness of consumerism and and how much time is wasted and money and human genius against these things that not just don't matter, right, but are actually making the world a lot worse. And I did, I had a falling down moment at the end of my advertising phase last time, where I just thought my two biggest clients are cars and chocolate, right? One is really buggering up the planet and the other one is really buggering up health. In you know, a compounding evil on top of evil. I'm flying around the world, looking like I care, like dissimulating to try and uh, sell more of this stuff that I think is fundamentally not good, and doing it really badly, unsurprisingly, because I was so miserable by the end of it. So, yeah, I don't flog pointless projects. I, well, you know me, I'm such an optimist, so I, I never look back and, you know, regret. So I think the learning about that is just to cut loose. Even if you're in the perfect public service zone, if something's not working, then then cut it loose.
0: Describe your falling down moment. I've got a picture <laughs> in my head, but I'd love to see what it just looks <laughs> like for Gail Gabby. <laughs>
1: There's a series of micro moments, sort of okay. largely around um, airports, like these places you have to go to just have these pointless meetings and hold these terrible debriefs and be abused by clients who are disappointed in your lack of ability to bring their salty biscuit to life. You were just arguing about whether the word joy was better than joyful in relation to is. a master brand strategy, you know, and you're like, <laughs> oh my God, and this is taking yeah. you away from your family in an industrial park outside Zurich. So I just, I just kept, I really was aware of just ending up in these, like a pantomime of motion and sound with absolutely no meaning at all. No,
0: that's quite beautifully described.
1: I know, I've never said that before. It's no, you, nice. it's, you, you you're, it it's your interview tactic, you're drawing yeah. me out of myself.
0: So being the optimist, tell us a great campaign you've worked on that you did think was effective. So it doesn't have to be a Fallon, but any any period in time.
1: Well, I was thinking about this on the way in, because we're in the, I don't know if you've noticed, the UK's in a little bit of political turmoil. Um, I've and, heard. Yeah, and I've got lots of friends who are working super hard at grassroots level to try and get the vote out. Because whatever you want, right, whether you want to leave Europe, don't leave Europe, want Boris Johnson, want Jeremy Corbyn. The key thing is that we have to all say what we want this time and not like, not bother, not show up. So there's a lot of friends of mine working at that level. And I remembered a time when I did that myself, like nearly, it was 20 years ago, I think. um, And the nightclub, the Ministry of Sound, at the time wanted to do a get the vote out campaign. I think the guy in charge was keen to he had like his eye on the Lords. But um it was a good brief. It was make sure that young people realize that your vote matters. And so we did this campaign called Use Your Vote or He'll Use His. And we went out and it was a good research brief. We we found a load of really, really unpleasant people genuine racists or misogynists or, you know, and we just filmed them and let them talk and pro prodded them a bit about what they felt and, uh, and why. And there's this like, one about a gardener.
0: If you bring a plant from a natural environment into an unnatural environment, i.e. from the country of its origin, you put them out in your garden
1: and as soon as you get a sharp frost or a really heavy rain, then they're washed away and they die. And then out of nowhere he drops this bomb of... Um... And nature will reassert
0: itself with people as well as with plants and you'll see that with gays. They'll be here for a short period of time, but they can't last because it's an unnatural state to be in.
1: It was just so shocking. And and we were watching all this raw footage of these sort of bad people, or a taxi driver talking about a girl with her knickers around her ankles, you know, at getting all the benefits. I mean, it was horrible. And I re-watched them just at the weekend. They're really powerful.
0: And these people, those people agreed to be in the commercial.
1: Because they didn't think they're controversial. <laughs> they thought they right. were talking common sense. Right. Yeah. No, not not a single one of them came after us and got sued, you know, we did release forms and said, we're just showing a diverse range of views to stimulate voting at the election. They were like, yeah, cool. Here's my view. I hate black people. (laughs) Here's my view. Girls are slags. Wow. I know.
0: It reminds me of those BMW Audi commercials. Do you remember that guy who... He goes to test drive a BMW. Oh,
1: yeah, <laughs> you love it. And love then it.
0: drives it around and you think that it's a BMW commercial and then he leaves and just goes, Nah, ain't my style. Yeah. And walks off. It's a perfect opinion piece. It's
1: not a beamer commercial, it's a, it's an Audi commercial, isn't it? it? Because it's an Audi isn't it an Audi dealership. He drives an Audi and, and you think and then he chucks it at the thing and he goes Nah. It's not really my style. I think it's Audi.
0: Yeah. The other way around. Yeah. Shit. Oh man, come on. <laughs> the power of advertising. Come on, I thought you were going to talk about Spice Girls.
1: <laughs> well, that, that was really good. That, that went well. That was a success, I thought. What was it? Well, the remake, the one we did recently. Yeah. Well, since, yes. oh, that was a lovely uh, project end to end. So that was during Global Goals time. And um, we wanted to, we'd done the Global Goals and we'd launch, launched those in 2015. And then we wanted to come back again in 2016 with a new take on it. And the nice thing about the Goals, right, is the 17, but any one of them, If you put in the middle of the wheel, like the brand identity is like a wheel, it shows how it relates to all the others, right? So there are systems. So you don't have to choose like, oh, I care about trees, so I'm not going to care so much about education. Actually, if you put education in the middle, you realize that an educated population is going to care about the trees and so on. So, and what we realized was there was a lot of talk at that time building about the importance of goal five, which is uh, gender equality. And uh, there were a lot of people coming into that space uh, with funding and with innovation. And so we thought it'd be a good time to um, to do some celebration of Goal 5. And it is a nice alliteration, right? Global goals, global girls. So we did a brief and um, it went to BBH, actually. it was a, I sat with uh, the BBH creative director at the time and talked about how could we celebrate Goal 5, but in a really kind of positive, upbeat way. We didn't want this to come across as kind of whingy or moany. Um and she pointed out it was rosie arnold she pointed out that it was going to be the 20 year anniversary of uh what i really really want, Yo, I'll tell you what I want what I really really want and so the brief became what i really really want is gender equality and then uh, we brought on this brilliant young director called MJ Delaney. She's, a, she's an advertising dynasty. You know the Delaney family? You must have worked for one of them at some point, no? I
0: worked for Greg Delaney very, very long time ago.
1: So that might even be her dad. She's one of the Tim, and Greg, you know, Barry right. children. Mm-hmm. And she said, right, what we need to do is remake the video, but we need to remake it with actual girl power, girl bands, like no actors and performers. These need to be people who already have an act, a point of view and a following, but from all over the world. So like, I was like, OK, MJ, immediately quadrupled the budget. Um, but we and she, she's brilliant. She's a brilliant caster and she works brilliantly with choreography. And she found like brilliant girls in India, brilliant girl band in Africa, um, some great Brits, some Americans and um, and just re-choreographed the, what I really, really want. But, you know, is equal pay is an end to, four, you know, arranged marriages. We got it. and It's like wow, that is excellent. Really good piece of craft. This the sort of slight squeaky pant bit was um, didn't have all the permissions in place <laughs> as we were getting up to release time, and it was one of those <laughs> um, moments where Richard, who's ever optimistic, and I'm sure it'll be fine. I'll just I'll, let's email my friend, you know, whoever it was at the record company, who had come back and said, great. Let me ask the girls. I'm sure it'll be fine. There's lots of I'm sure it'll be fines, mm-hmm. and then we got we got one of the spices not not the most famous one i got an email from her going love this this is amazing girl power let me know anything you want me to do and i was like oh i don't want to be mean so i'm not gonna say which one it was but it wasn't the one that you sort of would have needed and then really 11th hour i got a little email from victoria beckham which was quite exciting and it just said love this we'll post vb and so when it released, she put it on Facebook. And it was I've never had a genuine viral hit like that. You know, people say oh, it went viral. Then it mm-hmm. transpires someone put a million quid behind it to make it go viral. Mm-hmm. We honestly just turned on the feed. Look at me. I don't even know what the word is. <laughs> we, we put it down the internet pipes. And yeah. then the magic elves painted it on the screen. Um, but she posted it. And then a couple of other people shared. And, and it just went mental. I remember being in a hotel in, in Devon with my family. And um, I kept sort of looking at the computer and my husband James was going, what are you doing? I was like, it's going up by like a million every five minutes. This is insane. And and it went up to, I think, about 175 million every weekend.
0: It was really, really cool. I'd say that's pretty viral.
1: That's good, right? That's a viral hit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's pretty amazing.
1: Well, the power of a good post on Facebook, yeah, at the right time. But also, I've, I've shown that film like a hundred times in speeches when I, you know, I talk a lot about the goals. But platforms and conferences and stuff. And it still really gets people going. And then what we did, we did a version of it where the call to action was, what do you really, really want? And we were asking people to send in and we would upload them on the site, examples of what they really, really wanted for Goal 5. And what was so nice was, you know, we got a lot of boys from all over the world. Um, I remember one boy's thing just drawn on a bit of paper. I want my sisters to be able to go to school. I thought, oh, that's very cool. We sort of gathered all of that feedback and um, took it to the UN that year for the UN General Assembly. And it felt really powerful. You know, it felt like um, you put these things out and and they're great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but this was the next level because it stimulated people to do stuff and think about that goal in a way that I hadn't worked on before at such
0: scale. It was cool. Those are the campaigns that make a difference today, right? And then really use the internet for for the best of what the internet was originally intended. In actually creating dialogue and actually getting people to think about a message as opposed to, you know, just the sale of something or the consumption. Well, of it,
1: right, it's that communication with citizens as opposed to selling at consumers. That is the nicest thing about the goals, actually. If you said something about what do I not do anymore? I don't sell anything. Honestly, call ideas and change a product, but I don't. We are trying always to engage citizens in and uh, these themes and these matters in order to stimulate kind of support and change for a better
0: world. I can't remember when I first started. So I was working for Greg Delaney at Delaney Long Knox Warren, and they did a lot of COI advertising. Uh, The COI is the Central Office of Information that, of course, runs these public sector ads. And um, it wasn't the reason that I got into advertising. I wanted to work on The Economist ads or BMW or something like that. But there was a, a lady called Tara Howell who ran all the COI work for Delaney's. And um, I suddenly saw the, you know, the creativity that the work coming out on the COI stuff. And it was really creative, right? It was really insight-driven and it really, really had purpose. And to be honest, from that pretty much that moment on, I didn't want to do anything other than work on that stuff. Because I think the level of creativity and thought in it was far greater than anything that we were doing, whether it was for Bank of Scotland or...
1: Well, it always got the best talent, didn't it? I remember any any agency yeah. I ever worked on.
0: For the least money. For the
1: least, for, or none, you know, which was, was no. ironic because the government had pots of money at that point. But everybody, you got the best planners, best creative. I think that smoking ad, this, the uh, perfect body for smoking, that was a COI ad.
0: Do you remember those Charlie Says ads?
1: You see, then I think I must be younger than you because not really. <laughs> like I remember that no? Charlie Says ad Was yeah. it about fire or electric?
0: It was anything. It was uh, you know, don't go, don't go with strangers. That's right. Um, a whole, a whole series of different messages that Charlie, uh, the cat, would deliver and be translated by uh, by his partner.
1: I can picture it. It's like cartoony, right? It was a bit like, um yeah, yeah,
0: very crude. Yeah. I mean, it was very strange but very memorable. And
1: what? Era? When was that?
0: Charlie says came out in 1973.
1: Oh my god, Tim, you weren't born. <laughs>
0: But anyway, they became infamous when Prodigy remixed yeah. this sort of techno track with yeah, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> when That was in 1991. And then, then I think they became sort of, you know, legendary and um, there was nostalgia around it too. But
1: So before I went to the BBC, I was in advertising. So I've been in advertising twice. And the first time I was in advertising, we had the brief, uh, you know, like the nightmare when there's been a really great, very long running campaign, and then the client wants to bring the product back but wants a different creative. But really secretly, everyone just wants to do the last one. So we were working on Chocolate Orange, Terry's Chocolate Orange. So the classic ad was a pastiche of the um, Harrison Ford Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it would be a person desperately trying to escape something and you weren't sure what it was. So he almost faces death on a spike, fire, explosions, all that stuff. And And like the rug pull at the end is that he's just trying to get to the Chocolate Orange. And we were like endlessly trying to iterate like a different campaign And we had a strange client at the time, and he used to make us go to his house. He lived quite a long way out of London. And he was quite religious, that becomes relevant. And we'd been going and going again and just kept getting creative work rejected and rejected. He made us go to his house one one Christmas Eve. So I remember leaving West London at like 10 a.m. Christmas Eve, man, and driving two hours up the M4 to get to his house. And he welcomed us into his living room to do the presentation. So we're all like sitting around in our socks, right? Me and the executive director and planner and and his kids (laughs) and his wife's like bringing mince pies. And and we present what was a really good campaign because it was a public service riff on how to unwrap a Terry's chocolate orange, but without damaging yourself, right? Because the whole point was tap it, unwrap it. And so there was quite a lot of fun about don't smash it on his head. (laughs) Uh, It was quite, it was really good. And he massively rejected, just didn't get the reference, didn't get the, Didn't none of it. And as it transpired, had written his own campaign and proceeded to present that at us at length, like literally reading out the script. And it was all based on the notion that, um, you know, chocolate orange, a little bit like God, a bit like Jesus, you know, comes out at Christmas and then his favourite bit comes back <laughs> at Easter.
0: <laughs> we were like, oh my God. Did you make it?
1: <gasps> no, no, we did not. We got the hell out. I think it
0: would have been quite a funny ad.
1: It would have been like defamatory, diff- right? <laughs> it
0: would have been South Park style. I think would have worked. Would
1: well. have worked really well. But he was—he was, he was yeah. not ironic at all. He was actually removed quite some time, not too long after that, for um, some malpractice. So we're okay. That was a, that was a low point.
0: That was a low point. So, in our in our research. And you'd mentioned an ad from 1969 about a pregnant man.
1: Oh, which yeah.
0: It was pretty shocking, I think, at the time. And it has the ads that we found where it had a picture of a man with one hand on his belly and another supporting his back. He's pregnant. And underneath it, the line, it says, Would you be more careful if it was you that got pregnant?
1: I think he's new wearing a very, very domestic kind of suburban cardigan or something. Like he looks, exactly. looks like your dad with a very low, slung, pregnant belly. Yeah.
0: He does look uncannily like my Does dad he
1: looks a bit could he look a bit like you damien i'm just now
0: he, he I haven't could, got my, with glasses yeah <laughs> yeah
1: but uh, yeah no i do i do remember that as one of the most iconic images i don't know that i see that so often now But just brilliant simplicity also do you remember the other ones i remember which were not public service quite the opposite but when you could still advertise cigarettes the silk cut mm-hmm. ads do you remember those yeah and yeah. and you'd look and you're like, why am I staring around my saying, Oh God, it's a silk cut ad. Because th- they got to the point where you couldn't say the words, you couldn't say the product. So all they would show was a piece of purple satin with a cut in it.
0: But yeah, they were, I mean, fantastically beautiful, simple ads that um, were, were, I think, the sort of heyday of advertising that people actually really enjoyed advertising, which I'm not sure that anybody does anymore. However, being relatively optimistic, I do think that we're going to go through a period where people do fall back in love with advertising again because we're going to have to think more creatively and put more ideas back into the work because no one's just clicking on stuff anymore. No one is stupid enough just to endlessly and mindlessly click on every banner ad that that pops up in front of your face.
1: But do you think... I'm wondering if we're going into, like, some sort of post-advertising phase rather than going backwards, in the sense that, again, the magic internet elves that I don't really understand. But it seems increasingly that the sellers, like the retailers can bypass the whole advertising thing by just tagging what you're doing on the internet. And before you know it, you're wearing another pair of mahabis. you know, like, I don't consciously know that I've seen in a Mojave advert, but I definitely own several pairs. And somehow that happened.
0: They probably send them to you because you're so famous.
1: <laughs> That's not true. But if they're listening, size six, you're welcome. <laughs> I've got friends who work in agencies now where there's not a shred of creative output. It is literally algorithms tracking, you know.
0: But I I think it's going to change. I think Do you? you Yeah, there's a huge increase in ad blockers. More people are using VPNs. I think at a certain point, you know, there's only a limit of to how many people you can actually really target and deliver a message to because people are just, you know, opting out of it, unless the advertising is brilliant. So I I hope we're going to see actually an era where we're going back into, you know, really think intelligently about how you're going to deliver something to somebody to get them to do something. And I think, I mean, not that everybody can do a Spice Girls ad and, you know, receive that sort of response that people are commenting about, what the things that they really, really want. But I was um, in Lisbon last week and uh, a guy from Universal Music made a presentation about a small, um, I think it was Spanish or Mexican, uh, liqueur brand and they produced a campaign which was based on an algorithm that when you inputted enough information about you and your life and your family and loved ones, it would tell you how many hours or days you had left to actually spend with them. Wow. And this calculation basically, you know, would work out that if you put in, you know, where your parents lived and where you lived and how long you, you worked and all the rest of it, it would tell you that you only had 18 days left to spend with your father. Um, quite a tough statistic for a lot of people to deal with, I think, when you see it in such blunt terms, Mm. that it generated so much response. People saying, oh, my God, I've only got 18 days. I am going to go and book a trip with my dad and go away. And then they very intelligently started saying, we're not going to put any money into marketing anymore next year. We're going to start funding those trips. Tell us who you want to spend time with and where you want to be. And they started then engaging the community and giving them the power uh, and the resource to actually go and spend time, you know, with their loved ones, just in association with this company or brand. I think it's brilliant. I mean, it, that's the sort of work that I hope that we're going to see more of, uh, you know, in the, in the near future.
1: Oh, yeah, I love that. I mean, I, we um, at Fallon, we had the Nokia account right before they went off a cliff. Um, but, and one of the ideas that I was that's really sad, actually, that we didn't get to do, you know, the, do you remember the strap line for Nokia? It's connecting people. I mean, a little generic, maybe in a mobile phone Mm. context, but they owned it to start off with. And we thought of all the people who are away from their loved ones at Christmas and maybe can't afford to get back. And so we wanted just once to put on like a Nokia plane and that you could like text or bid to get on a seat on the plane. and You'd run these planes getting people home to their loved ones because it just felt like a good thing to do. I don't know whether it's confusing thinking about advertising getting better because advertising used to be what went in between ITV programs, right? But Mm -hmm. certainly the creativity and communication and taking communication beyond what we used to know it as, but actually taking it into action, creativity of action, I think is really exciting. I'm remembering um, there was a campaign last year uh, to do with sustainable fashion, right? So one of the big revelations that I've come to in the last 12 months of working in the environment goals is how terrifically damaging the uh, fashion industry is to the planet. Right? It's the second right. biggest polluting after the oil industry because mm-hmm. at every level it's bad, right? It's, the dyes are toxic. Growing cotton takes too much water. The supply chain, like human rights issues in factories, appalling, like really uh, untransparent child workers, you know, ladies having to have sex with factory owners to keep their jobs—just like bad, bad, bad—and um, and yet we all love like the hey, it's only four ninety nine, it's amazing. So this company did a a piece of communications, but it's broadest. They put these vending machines, I think, in uh, Oslo, and it was the one euro T-shirt. Did you hear about this? No. There's a good case study online. So you they like, would you like this T-shirt for one? And there's like a little ad running of, you know, some somebody looking really great in a T-shirt. So you put your euro in and then while it's ostensibly grabbing your T-shirt for you, they start playing a movie about the supply chain of that T-shirt and how this problem happened. And, you know, this is the damage it did to the coastline. And this is the worker who can't see her family because she's stitching it for so cheap. And, and then all right at the end, it goes, do you still want the T-shirt? And I'm like... 76 percent people go like no i do not want the teacher and they're like do you want to give the money to sorting out the problem yes keep the money in fact have some more it was super successful see that's creative that is a creative piece of public service i would say that's education and engagement and like genius end to end so that sort of stuff i love and i and i hope that this like new generation of creatives who have all the tricks right they know how to mobilise the magic elves to do everything. If you can then sort of fuse that with pregnant man type levels of innovation and creative thinking, Mm. then we definitely are in for something quite exciting.
0: So what I think I liked about the public sector advertising and to some degree not having a lot of money, I think that helps, are the, the sort of physical constraints and the regulatory constraints around what you can and can't say, which either depending on who you are you know if you're an optimist you would say oh my god this this is great i know exactly you know what i need to do within the confines of you know of this brief or you'd say oh my god this is so restrictive i can't possibly do anything with it but i think that those restrictions somehow can channel a lot more creativity and make you think i hate to use the term but you know outside of the box i'm interested to know what you think about what's happening around political advertising you know on social media twitter has decided to Ban political advertising, but you know, without getting too much into what's happening in the U.S. and why there needs to be these huge fundraising campaigns and then you know huge political advertising campaigns, you know, what do you think we need to do with political advertising on social media in general? How do, how can we to evolve it from where it is right now?
1: Well, I mean, if you could see me now, you'd, my head would be in my hands because I I do think it's a really really disturbing landscape out there. Um, the sort of unregulated fusion of politics and social media and communications has already got us into some real pickles, right? If you look at who's mm-hmm. in charge of the world and who's believing what. And and then that's before these deep fakes are like commonplace, but that it's coming. But I was having this talk the other day to my friend who works in tech policy. And I was saying, how we know that these things are going to cause terrific problems in the world, right? Really, really profoundly problematic technology where you're going to be able to make any public figure look like they've said anything. And that's already in development. And we're reading articles about how it's not, oh, it's getting there. And here's this deep fake company that's just raised its second round. And and they reckon in a year, it's going to be really perfect. And I'm like amazed that we're not regulating that in advance. Because I think if you stopped 10 years ago even, and, and thought about it, you might have banned a lot of the stuff that became commonplace and, and, you know, allowed us to get into a place where politics has been so debased and devalued because of the way it runs rampant through social media. And and it's allowed to spend, I mean, and in, and I mean, like in a funnier way, maybe this is nothing new, money has always warped American elections, right? Money has always funded, the candidates who are well-funded are able to pump their message out through TV. And before that, I guess they could afford more rallies or more leaflets, right? So in, in, right. In, a, in a way, we're not seeing anything different. But just like everything with AI and tech, it's an accelerator and a magnifier. Like I saw a very interesting talk at Can Lion, you know, the advertising festival by mm-hmm. uh, the people who invented chatbots. And then he had this academic on who he's hired to make sure that they try and keep them bias in check. Because you know that thing about AI is going to be as biased as the people who program it. So mm-hmm. if it's if it's all white men, then go figure it's going to favor white men in job ads and police searches and all that stuff. And they were saying, "Look, all technology does is magnify what humans do anyway." And the problem is humans, you know, humans can create and they can love each other and they can make great music, but they can also kill each other. (laughs) And if you're not careful, we're going to be in a situation where technology is just amplifying the the worst traits of mankind. And so I think all we're seeing in advertising and social media and politics is a huge exaggeration of what has always been true, which is money can buy you votes, money can buy you influence. But it's so magnified and accelerated I'm like draconian. I'm like, go back, cut it back, ban it. I'm all with Twitter, getting off Twitter. I think Facebook should be forced to absolutely declare if any piece of content has been funded by a political party. And, you know, you almost want enormous disclaimers on it to the point where it's unreadable and unwatchable. But I I, I feel like something way more dramatic in a regulatory sense should be happy i mean it won't i'm being utopian because nothing is but
0: why why wouldn't it i mean you should be if you came through the uk advertising industry you would have had to put every single tv commercial that broadcast on tv through the bacc the british advertising i don't know what the cc stands for but the commission that basically (laughs) reviewed all the advertising uh, that that appeared on tv and it had to be fact-checked it had to be checked that if british airways was claiming it was the world's favorite airline it had to be able to substantiate that. It really was, in fact, yeah, the favourite based yeah, on Yeah, I remember. On, I forgot uh, that we had to do
1: that. Yeah, that was a junior yeah. grunt job, wasn't it? You had to yeah. go run it over as a physical tape to the BACC and make sure that it was okay to air. Yeah.
0: Your Betamax under yeah. your arm in the rain.
1: Yeah, exactly. With no <laughs> phone, no mobile to but speak of at all.
0: So why would we not just extend that to social media and say it's perfectly legitimate? I don't think we should personally ban political advertising. I think it just needs to be checked. So if, if everybody was basically allocated a time slot... You a certain number of tweets, certain number of Facebook posts, whatever else, and they were, you know, constrained by, like, you know, the COI did, certain time slots, certain wording, and then it's fact-checked. Why would we stop it? I think the the, the actual benefit of the internet is that we can give everybody equal share of voice and allow everybody to give their messages to the public to make a decision for themselves. It just needs to be truthful.
1: I massively agree. I just, what we have not seen to date is any kind of, like, overriding interference or regulation from government or, you know, state or health bodies when it comes to the tech industry making money from advertising. And, that you know, that's what it is. It's it's Facebook making an enormous amount of money from these political campaigns and there's no regulating factor that comes and says, "Do you know what, that's not such a good idea. We need to make sure that it's only this much and that everyone has the same and that it's truthfully and legally disclaimed and uh, transparent. That's just not happening. And so, so so, I wish it would. Do you think it's coming?
0: Not, not yet, but I think it's, it's happened with Twitter, right? Yeah, I mean, they don't make that much money compared to the rest of the advertising revenue they generate. So it's $23 million I think they got in political advertising Um, So they can obviously turn it off and I'm pretty certain that Facebook will do the same. I actually just don't think it should be turned off. I think it should just be regulated and that's what they really don't want. They don't want anybody to come in and actually look at the process and interject themselves into that process because... Once they start there, where are they going to end? Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think that's what they're—that's what they're very conscious of—is trying to avoid that from happening.
1: But maybe the way to do this would be like old school, where the campaigns are—they're only allowed to spend a certain amount of money, so they might choose to spend it yeah. all on Facebook or none. Mm-hmm. They only get twenty grand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because then you yeah. would avoid like the excesses of the American system, where you know, dropping a million a day on an advert to tell you that this candidate's better than that one. At least in the UK, there is, in theory, a, a cap. And it has to be kind of all declared. But I worry. I definitely worry. I think there's something very dark going on at that at that intersection between politics, advertising, social media.
0: I'm actually less worried. I think that next year we're going to see a lot of change happening in the spaces. Um, the conversation has got to a point where um, you know every single country pretty much on Earth is concerned about similar issues and are going to have to address them. They can't leave them for much longer. The thing that needs to get out of the way is the boards that regulate and control these companies i think in 2020 we're going to see a very different landscape around it
1: well i'm glad you think that it's clearly cuz you've gone back to holland you see the land where everything <laughs> is balanced and fair
0: true um, things can only get better um, is that <laughs> oh is that a campaign God. you worked on
1: yeah i came up with the song things can only get Yeah. Really? yeah, I, I did. did. That not. was funny. Yeah, so yeah, sing that, it. Sing it. No. Yeah, that was the 97 election. And, well, it was my first election campaign, first and last. And it's like that is a roller coaster. That's what made me leave advertising and go into the media, not in a negative way. It was just so exciting to be you know, normally in advertising, you get a brief, you work on it for four weeks, you present it back to the client, it takes them two weeks to tell you anything, you know, blah, blah, blah. This was like, right, Alistair thinks we should do this. Right, let's go and write it. Right, I'm back in the House of Commons at midnight showing Tony Blair, Alistair, Gordon Brown. Gordon's not speaking to Peter, Peter's not speaking to Alistair. It's like, ah! But um, out of that did emerge, I think, some fun stuff. But the, the biggest shift during that campaign was the decision to go positive.
0: As opposed to negative?
1: As opposed to negative, there were forces in that core management team in Labour who wanted to just hammer the negative. Like they wanted to. I remember them. One of the very famous cabinet members made us do a picture of a frozen baby, like literally frozen embryo, to make the point that the Tories were going to put VAT on fuel. So Tory. Fuel bombshell
0: in a typical kind of shit. And oh, act- what's the to do with a frozen embryo?
1: actually made us make a model of a frozen embryo and shoot it in secret because they knew that the other half of the communications team didn't agree with the strategy. I mean, it was it was absolutely excruciating having to present it then back to everyone
0: having shot it but what's the logic i don't get it
1: because children will freeze to death i mean it's terrible it was absolutely terrible it was a really bad idea it's like trying to trigger like victorian england anyway terrible vibes so out of that mess came this decision of britain deserves better that was the slogan and, and pete gatley who's the art director at the time had secretly just beavered away at doing these amazing colorful straplines you know children deserve better nurses deserve better britain deserves better just a really nice very very different take on things which alistair campbell you know the Comms Director and tony blair really got behind and that was the context in which we were trying to choose a song i remember coming up with a short list of three i can never remember the third our lead one was actually james sit down remember that one
0: Yeah. But then, Do you want to sing that no, one? No, I don't.
1: But I think, uh, <laughs> I think it was Peter Mandelson in his really brilliantly arch way. Mm, it just had bit communist, all that sitting down. <laughs> it's really, really, funny. And and then we play D. Ream. And I, my memory is him sort of tapping his foot and going, much mm. better. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> mm. And then if it became this Very sing, enjoyable. Very,
1: mm, bouncy and I remember like, working so hard as you do that last week of the election and fl- I remember being in Tony's house up in Sedgefield and then getting on the helicopter I think and flying down to London and reveal. look at you and I know get me right I was only cause I had a bag carrier not because I was- in number 10 I didn't, I didn't go into number 10. I was on the South Bank as the results were coming in and, and like proper up all nighter, right? In fact, I tried to find it the other day and I don't think it exists anymore, but I have seen footage of me being told by a policeman to get down because I'd scaled one of those big masts on the South Bank as Tony came out of the festival hall and said, you know, brilliant, we've won the election. It was about three in the morning. I was so wired. I remember going to a nightclub that I knew... Just to, I couldn't get to bed. I was just like, ah. Um, so I went into this nightclub and they started playing that kind of "You Can Work their best, you know, the start of that D. Ream song, and so it all just hit me this sort of extraordinary kind of two months of I was only twenty six, really hard work and pressure, and and it had worked, and you know he had gone into power, and and because the whole nightclub went insane, like everybody, st- and that oh man, it was such a lovely moment of uh, you know optimism and energy and i just sat down and started sobbing <laughs> on my own because I, I just couldn't cope one of those totally overwhelming moments everyone's like punching the air off their faces you know like things you get better and i was just a little sobby wreck in the corner but um yeah, it was a good moment that's why i wasn't in downing street And then i just sort of danced about six in the morning and went to bed
0: woke up and he was in number 10 and do you think you could use that again right now in british politics <gasps>
1: It is. What would you
0: do now? What would your ad be right now for British politics?
1: Oh my God. Uh, Sack all of them. I think optimism is desperately needed. I think vision is needed in the communications. The problem is you've got three people who basically have only ever been in politics. So the sort of insider trading, navel gazing, he said that, but she's going to do that. She's rubbish. You know, it's just no one is talking about the world in a genuinely uplifting, exciting way. Everyone's looking sideways with a, a rifle as opposed to looking forward with a plan. I mean, A, Tony Blair's character was kind of looked forward with a positive plan kind of got. And a right. good time for that as well. But that's what that campaign did. It it really gave people something to believe in. This is not a communications problem, right? This is a policy problem. It just feels to right. me that like there is no vision. So, how, I mean, how would you do a communications campaign around that? I know it's going to win because Clarity wins and Get Brexit Done is going to win, so i think the tories are going to win because they'll say that again and again and again but it's it's kind of like it's not very visionary
0: you're creative what's your line if you're going to do a campaign right now for british politics to save it from where it is what would your line be
1: make it stop
0: <laughs> make it stop
1: there we go. Please make it stop. Boris
0: listens. You know, Boris and Jeremy both listen to this podcast. I'm so sure can...
1: they do. Well, guys, yeah. guys, just make it stop. I think you've got to go for, like, belief, something but like Britain to believe in, like believe in Britain. I just want somebody to show that they've got some energy and, you know, boom about them for the future of this country, for everyone. I guess, I, I yeah, Britain deserves better. I'm, I think I don't think that's been bettered. And we could really do with it now.
0: Okay, let's end on that. Yeah. Britain could do better.
1: Could do better, yeah, please.
0: Gail, thank you very much for sharing your wisdom, sharing your wealth of knowledge for public policy and British politics, and then shamelessly dropping in <laughs> helicopters and Tony Blair's house.
1: You're well. It's been a pleasure. You're thank you. Great fun. See you soon.
0: And that's our episode today. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby. Our supervising producer is John Asante. And our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It really helps spread the word. And you can follow me on Twitter at dj Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Neon Hum Media. Thank you very much for listening. This episode of Influence is brought to you by Yellow Belly, a new car that runs entirely on urine. Now, we're joined in the studio by Matt, who heads up our sales team, who's had the privilege of driving across America in his new Yellow Belly. Matt, tell us about it.
2: It's wonderful, Damien. Um, I can't speak highly enough for Yellow Belly. Um, as you know, I drive across the country. I've been road tripping now for uh, the past couple of months. And, and Yellow belly's enhance enhanced that experience where I only have to pull over for food and drink. So it's taken two out of three components away. And I don't think I need to tell you the third.
0: And how do you fill the car up? Can you do that while driving or do you need to exit the vehicle and do it? on the side of the road.
2: It has both capabilities, Damien, so it's wonderful. Let me tell you, Yellow Belly also has the exclusive insertion. It, it's, a, it's a little painful um, at first, but it's really taken all that time out of having to pull over at a, at a nasty rest stop. I don't know about you, but I can't stand the stalls and the, and the smell and the atmosphere of, of a rest stop. But Yellow Belly's taken that away, so now I can just provide urine as I'm going zero to 60 at any time.
0: I think it's amazing. When I drive to San Francisco and I'm drinking 19 cans of Red Bull, I wouldn't need to stop. I would just be able to exactly. go to the bathroom and fill up my car at the same time and keep driving. I mean, you know, it's, the, it's always on. Is what we need. Red Bull
2: actually uh, acts as a turbo fuel, so you're cleaning out the engine and, and getting that extra more, you know, green, phosphorus uh, type of energy for that Yellow Belly automobile.
0: Yellow Belly, the new car that runs entirely on urine. Elon Musk could never have done this. Amazing. Thanks, Matt.